John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1311.DE0212, certificate number 28046, Tippy Hedron's Fingernails. Do you have a favorite Alfred Hitchcock movie, John? What's your favorite Hitchcock movie? Hmm. Uh, Marnie. <laughs> Marnie? The Sean Connery movie Marnie? <laughs> um, a suspenseful it, sex mystery? That's what uh, the poster said. Do you like a suspenseful sex mystery? You know, I'm, I, that's kind of how I describe my whole life up to now. I feel like every sex act is kind of a suspenseful sex mystery in a way. Well, yeah. And a lot of the suspenseful sex mystery about my life is when or if I'll ever have sex again. <laughs> and it's been like that since I first had sex. Every subsequent time I had sex, it was like, wow, I get to do it one more time. So you're the master of suspense yeah. in the bedroom. Yeah, well, do you, you always you, you always have a little cameo like Hitchcock. You, you, uh -huh. you, you waddle out. <laughs> <laughs> Look directly at the camera, take a puff of my cigar. No, you know, I've ne I'm, I'm not, uh, I haven't had a lot of long-term relationships. I've obviously never been married or... So there's never, there's never a feeling like, oh, this is at least an assured, I am in an assuredly sexual relationship that's, now. That's what my uh, wedding vows were, actually. We wrote our own vows. And <laughs> Do it was, you it was assure me? <laughs> an assuredly sexual relationship, or heretofore ASR. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's very romantic. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, who, I'm I'm always asking people why they got married, and I I assume that that's a component of it. That's what the numbers say, right? right? That, the, the, far from the stereotypes about cold marriage beds. In fact, mm -hmm. married people are having mm -hmm. more and better and freakier sex than all of us. <laughs> yeah. Some some youth pastor in Duluth <laughs> is having the craziest sex. I remember a, a, like a rock and roll friend of mine when he was about 27 or 28, he was like, man, I'm tired of the dating scene. I'm just ready to like settle down, pick a gal and just make a go of it. And I was like, this is the lamest conversation I've ever had. That's why you're getting married? Because you're like tired of the dating scene? 
lame. The dating scene is pretty bad. Well, it is, but that I, I I'm a romantic, so I always assumed that you only got married because you fell in love and couldn't do. My mom used to say, don't get married unless it's the only thing you want to do. <laughs> I, I feel like I've given that advice about being a writer or an artist, but I love that advice about being a spouse. <laughs> yeah. If it's the only thing you want to do, have then a family. Fine. If you can't think of any reason to avoid it, <laughs> and, if you're compelled. And consequently, I've never been married. Well, um, you know, this is all fascinating, but it, yeah. it has little to do with the oeuvre of, of British suspense director Alfred Hitchcock. Is that true though? There's an awful lot of, uh, like, um, I mean, he makes a lot of workplace comedies, a lot of, uh, a lot of like workplace comedies. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine Alfred Hitchcock's The Office. There's like a shadow of a noose in the HR guy's office. What's your favorite Hitchcock movie? The Birds? Uh, I'm glad that you just looked up two, knowing that we would be doing Tippy Hedren today. (laughs) You looked up The Birds and Marnie. Are you not a, do you feel like you're not familiar with the work of Hitchcock? I feel like it's kind of out there in the cultural ether. You, you can't feel like, yeah, we used to sit down and watch people scamper down Mount Rushmore's face on TV on Saturday afternoon. Uh, you know, I have a podcast where I talk about film. You talk about war movies. I talk about war movies. And Hitchcock on, did make a few World War II movies. Foreign the, Correspondence, very good. Lifeboat's very good. Well, let me write these down. Sound effect of pencil on paper. Uh, but honestly, I'm, I, I have this problem with all consumable media, which is I'm not really a media consumer. So the you consume leather satchels. I do made by the Filson company. I buy a lot of leather satchels <laughs> instead of that's your Netflix. <laughs> Come over for Filson and chill. Uh, so my but although although I have consumed a tremendous amount of media, sure we're Americans. It's just it has followed no pattern and it has followed no like personal passion, right? The things that I watch, the books that I read, the music that I've listened to. It's never really a result of me chasing things that I think I'll like, and much more a case of me remaining stationary while, while stuff flies at you. Yeah, just media just crests over me. You're like a man walking over in the subway in a windstorm with newspaper pages just flying exactly. at it, and every so often one will just hit you in the face, and you will say, I'll "Be like what, Marnie? War is on." <laughs> Uh, and so like I never, for instance, I never dated anybody who was, who said, let's go on a Hitchcock thing. And I never pursued Hitchcock movies on my own. So the ones I've seen were always on late night television and it always was. Tell me what you do know about him. I'm very interested in this entry level. Entry level Hitchcock stuff. Well. What would you think is, is the, is in the cultural ether? What's the cultural literacy stuff that people know about Hitchcock? So Rear Window. Yes. Uh, yeah. I remember watching and feeling very sort of compelled by my mom. My mom grew up in a Hitchcock era. So for instance, she hates birds because she saw birds in the theater when she was impressionable. And so- To this day, she's scarred by that. Well, so she loves watching birds through a window, but she doesn't want to touch a bird. She doesn't want to meet your parrot or she doesn't- Has she seen the movie Meet the Parrots? (laughs) With with, with De Niro? (laughs) Hang on. You can't milk a parrot, Greg. <laughs> so your mom still has these fears, the very primal fears that she remembers from being a young person watching Alfred Hitchcock movies. Right. And, and I think she shares that with a generation of Americans. She is that generation, right? Psycho scared her. Before, yeah, there were no slasher movies until Hitchcock essentially invented them in 1960 with Psycho. So the things people were scared of, which kind of seems funny to us, is these kind of moody, suspenseful films with creaky violin scores. 
And he was very successful at branding himself as the guy who understands fear and let's go see a Hitchcock film every year and be pleasantly scared with whatever this spooky (laughs) British master has concocted for us. (laughs) And he became almost a Walt Disney of it where he would kind of collegially show up on everybody's TV once a week and say, you know, good evening, you know, and he would, just like Disney, he had kind of figured out this brand and he was kind of your genial uncle of it. But instead of animated woodland animals, it was uh, all kinds of killers and fiends and and things that go bump in the night. And that's my feeling about it, right? I mean, um, North by Northwest was a movie that I watched again on TV and was struck by Cary Grant's suit. (laughs) And then over the years realized- John, what's North by Northwest about? (laughs) Well, there's this gray suit. (laughs) But I realized uh, later on, that within the menswear universe, Cary Grant's suit in North by Northwest is actually a thing. There's a, a universe of people. So you do follow the menswear cinematic universe? I don't, no. I just, again, it's on late night TV. And I'm sitting there and, the, and like the menswear, <laughs> the menswear show comes on and I'm like, huh, interesting. I, I can picture that. that suit, but mostly because he's doing unusual things that I would not put on a suit for. Like yeah. if I'm going to run from a crop dusting plane or dangle from a mountain... I'm not going to put on a very nice, great double-breasted. Yeah, and this suit, you know, that scene, I think, where he takes the suit off in the hotel and he says, sponge clean this. (laughs) It's just such a moment from a different era that I think it it sticks out. But no, I so I have not pursued, Hitchcock did, what, 30 films? More. I I never pursued a, a close read of them. They just, they came across my bow and I watched them. Again, I'm not like a Kubrick fan. I don't follow the a director. I'm just not a fan boy of anything. I don't have any Marvel omnibuses. Omnibuy? I, I, yeah, so I know this about you, yeah. that you, that you would never identify as Hitchcock and be, oh boy, it's Hitchcock night. Pop up some popcorn. Let's see what's next in our rewatch. Ooh, rope. Like, I know that's not you. No. Is it you? Uh, Have you watched all the Hitchcocks? Yeah, I remember kind of discovering him in high school. And you feel very grown up because you're watching an old movie, but they still play really well. I mean, the guy made well over 30 American movies, studio movies, and between 12 and 15 are just stone cold classics. Mm -hmm. And so they still play really great. And so it's not only you're seeing the guy invent all this stuff, this language, but it still plays really well today. You can tell your parents you're watching a Hitchcock film and they're not going to Say no, because it's not R-rated. I do remember being at my grandparents once, and I, t- I turned on Turner Classic Movies, and it's literally the shower scene in Psycho when I turn it on. And I think there's no way I, you know, Turner Classic Movies you turn on, you have to watch 90 minutes of Joan Blondell before you get to anybody you recognize. But I had actually turned it on during the shower scene, and I watch it long enough to realize it is not a uh, any kind of clip show or a documentary. I have turned on Psycho during... The shower scene and Janelle is about to get it. And as I'm watching it being like, oh, this is so good. I was in college. My grandpa walks in and he's like, what is this? Are you watching a porno? (laughs) My 70-year-old grandpa thinks that a porno is still a black and white stag film of a lady in a shower. And somehow I found it on his cable system. (laughs) Yeah, I turned on the old porno channel, grandpa. Now, was uh, this a seduction technique for you? Uh, is this how you... With my grandpa? Not with your grandpa. Is this how you, uh, how you met and, um, and enticed young, uh, young friends? Into my, into my basement? Yeah. Hey, you guys want to watch some Hitchcock I movies? I feel like in the blockbuster era, there actually was some get the girls over for a spooky uh, oh, Hitchcock yeah. movie kind of a thing. And maybe that's just because in a kind of a clean cut 
Mormon context, you're not going to invite the girls over to watch a Scream movie or a Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. But Hitchcock kind of still has the same facade, but it's, you know, family approved. Did you have MTV? Oh, yeah. Did why? you just, <laughs> why? What's, what am I getting, <laughs> what am I getting lured into here, John? We all had MTV. Not everybody. There were people that didn't have MTV. I mean, not that would ever be friends with me. It, is that your seduction method? You, you, yeah, you just all, come over and watch MTV. Let's watch some pop-up video on VH1. <laughs> See yeah, what happens. I am way too old for pop-up video. <laughs> right. Like you were imagining having a girl over and watching a new Billy Idol video. Yeah, exactly. Um, Just like, hey, man, Starship, <laughs> we built this city. <laughs> it's like they're talking about us. So who were the other directors in Alfred Hitchcock's ranks, if any? He's So he's kind of alone. Like really when I was thinking about this, it's hard to compare him to anybody but Disney as far as just being a genius businessman Orson and Wells? brand guy. You know, Orson Welles makes one or two great art films and is immediately disgraced. Whereas Hitchcock comes to Hollywood with great aplomb, wins the Best Picture Oscar for his very first movie, huh. Rebecca, and then goes from strength to strength. Uh, just continues making popular and critically beloved classics for decades. Um, my favorite is probably Vertigo, yeah. which is kind of the consensus critics thing, but it's very personal for me because I remember watching Vertigo for the first time and being like, well, this doesn't play at all. It's got a weird structure. You find out the twist ending two thirds of the way through, you know, I'm really not on board with this at all. It's not what I thought it was going to be. And then rewatching it, knowing that it was going to be weird and then just loving it. Huh. And a light bulb turned on in my mind that like, there's a lot of art that can do two things. You know, it doesn't have to be a movie. It can be a, a novel or an album where the first time you hear it, you think, well, this isn't what I wanted. Sure. This isn't okay computer again. Like I, the, I don't like this new record. Like the first Jane's Addiction record. Exactly. I was, I was like, what is this noise? And maybe even more so for me when it's somebody, uh, you know, I, that I think I know and it's different, yeah. you know, it's a different sound or. But yeah, also for a new artist who's just doing something you've never seen before. And then you listen to it the second time, anticipate, you're braced for the weird art, and then you can just sink right in it into butter. And, and it's amazing. And I remember, you know, just loving Vertigo the second time and thinking every movie can be two movies, you know? Uh, and Vertigo, by the way, if you haven't seen it, is a movie where um, it's got a mistaken identity doppelganger conceit, Jimmy Stewart finds a woman and wants to reshape her as this unattainable icy blonde whose life he could not save in a past case. And the twist is, and, and so he kind of creepily grooms this woman to look like his lost love. Huh. And I have never seen Vertigo. Well, then I will not give away the twist. It's very good. Thank you. <laughs> the movie gives it away halfway through, but I will not on this show. The future links, there's no way they've seen it. No, no, no. Well, we'll have to. They I can go to the ruins of the last blockbuster in Bend, Oregon. And dig through the tapes. Hopefully, uh, because we're putting this in the omnibus, uh, our extensive community of librarians will also find a way to include the actual film so that we're just not entering data into the omnibus. Right. We're, we're trying to actually preserve the, the, the source material. Pause the time capsule at this point. I don't know what your interface is like. Right. Take uh, 118 minutes to watch Vertigo. Maybe it's longer than that. Do it right now. Right now. Are you back? <laughs> okay. Still okay. don't don't spoil it for me because I'm in real time. Uh, so, but the, uh, the interesting thing that people have recently, you know, kind of the new critical discourse about Hitchcock is that he was not just this avuncular showman, but that he was really making these disturbing movies because he was kind of a disturbed guy, very nakedly putting all his obsessions and hangups 
on the screen. That seems like a very contemporary read of an artist. It is, and, and not at all what people would have said about somebody in 1955. the 50s or the 60s. Right. And yet- If you could put even a, if you could put even a tiny hat on your uh, disturbed inner life in the 50s, people accepted it. Oh, look at the tiny hat. And so a lot of these readings are not particularly convincing to me when you read about how, you know, actually all these awful John Ford Westerns are about- his repressed sexuality? I guess. Yeah. Or, you know, secretly he, he he is for the Indians or, or whatever. Oh, I see. But in the case of Hitchcock, it seems very convincing. You know, when you when you see Jimmy Stewart, America's sweetheart, kind of creepily grooming this woman to look and dress and do her hair exactly like the woman he lost, what you're actually seeing is the reason Hitchcock made movies. He loved to have kind of an icy, unattainable blonde that he would make just so and do exactly the things that he wanted to see a woman doing on screen. And this was a big part of his, of his inner life. Um, critic Donald Spoto wrote a 1983 book called The Dark Side of Genius, which kind of centers on this central idea that Hitchcock was a screwed up guy who had a really weird and repressed view of women and sex, and he needed to put it on the movie screen. Did he... Um lose someone in, uh, that he loved at a young age? or well, kind of. See, this is really interesting. I mean, I don't know if you want to, you know, maybe you can go back to his mom or not. But in the 50s, at least, you know, the, the woman that was his ideal, that, you know, made him want to, the woman that he wanted to look beautiful on big silver screens was Grace Kelly right. from Rear Window. And obviously you cannot do better. for the, if, if that's your look, if that's your type, how can you do better? So my mom says, again, to make it about my mom, she said that, during the rear window era, she dyed her hair blonde in emulation of Grace Kelly. And my mom- But Hitchcock didn't make her do it. Jimmy Stewart no. didn't come to her house and say- They never met either it guy. It can't matter to you. It matters to me. <laughs> uh, but my mom looked enough like Grace Kelly. Like she was, in her youth, she was, had a same, the same kind of vivacious voluptuousness, but, but a girl next door. And she says that my dad singled her out at a party- because my dad was in love with Grace Kelly. Oh, and this was how they met? This, this was, was their first met. party? Yeah. Oh. And so she credits Grace Kelly, that hair, and the movie Rear Window. And your existence, John Roderick. With my existence, that's you, right. If not for Grace Kelly looking very sexy in Rear Window, you are not here today. So when I watched Rear Window, I already knew this story. And so I watched it the whole time thinking- That's my mom. It's my mom. I was to, like a, to, it was to, like a back to the future problem. This really adds a new level of psychosexual problems yeah. that even Hitchcock did not intend. Where I was like, I really do find her very, very attractive, but, <laughs> but, but I can't. <laughs> so Hitchcock felt very betrayed when, spoilers, Grace Kelly uh, left Hollywood to marry the Prince of Monaco. <sighs> I felt betrayed. <laughs> was this hard for you at negative, <laughs> yeah. at negative whatever years of age you were? Yeah, Prince Rainier, not exactly... I mean, not exactly a strapping figure. It is the appeal of aristocracy, though, you yeah. know? Prince Charming is Prince Charming, even if he's kind of a grain guy with a weak chin, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, and she felt that American Midwestern girl's, you know, irresistible lure of the fairy tale and right. gave up Hollywood. And I think Hitchcock was very close to bringing her back a few times. You know, please do, I can't remember what it was, you know, do the, what turned out to be the Doris Day part in Man Who Knew Too Much, or or maybe it was the Tippi Hedren part in The Birds. And Grace would almost do it and then be like, no, sorry, I'm, I'm Princess Grace now. Right. So Hitchcock had a hard time trying to replace her. Um, for Vertigo, he was very into turning Vera Miles into his kind of blonde porcelain beauty. And, you know, if you're a British guy, Hitchcock's age, you can see maybe why this image of this straight-laced repressed woman who secretly 
you know, when the lights are low, actually can cut loose and be naughty is, is it's a real kind of Benny Hill middle-aged British man's fantasy. Uh-huh. And you could see why you see a he, glimpse of her, her stocking, her garter. <gasps> yeah. You know, oh, she seems so oh, straight laced in that conservative suit, but oh, when we, when you get her home, <laughs> my goodness, yeah. uh, oh, all these kind of chortling <laughs> gross British men. <laughs> it seems very key to, to, to Hitchcock's sexuality. So, you know, he, uh, he cast Vera Miles in um, Vertigo, what would be the Kim Novak part. And Vera Miles finds she's pregnant. And Hitchcock, once again, furious. I bet. Like, won't, refuses to work with her for years. She finally shows up as kind of the secondary lead in, in Psycho. But, you know, he just thought that was unforgivable. That I put you in a movie and you marry a prince? I put you in a movie and you decide to have a kid? Like, do you know who I am? Like, he just wanted to build and control these women. And did he have that kind of power in Hollywood at the time? I mean, he was, was did Hollywood exist in such a way that a director had that kind of authority. Yeah. I think of it as the studio having authority. Very unusual in his in his day for him to have this kind of director, producer, and even writer power. Like he would sit down in the writer's trailers and they would bang out the screenplays together. And that's why he was always, you know, he would be working from a script by whoever, John Steinbeck or, you know, the, the biggest names. And yet they would all have his weird hangups and set pieces in them because he had had a nightmare about the cops arresting the wrong guy or a nightmare about somebody hanging from the Statue of Liberty's torch or... uh you know, a weird sex hang up about a woman who says this, but then later does this. And huh. so all this stuff bleeds into the movies. He had a really unprecedented amount of control over his enterprise just because the movies were good and they were hits. And so with Grace Kelly sidelined in Monaco and Vera Miles pregnant, he needed a new leading woman. He needed a new kind of icy blonde that he could turn into Grace Kelly. And this brings us to Natalie Hedron called Tippy by her Scandinavian Minnesota family. I think it's a, a shortening for some kind of weird Swedish diminutive t- tupla or tupsi or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was always Tippi Hendren to her, like Pippi, to her family. Like Pippi Longstock. Sure. Also Swedish. All yeah. Swedish people have a name that rhymes with Ippy. nippy. Nippy. Because w- it's so nippy up there. Hmm. A lot of people don't know that. If your name is Sven, they just call you Svippy. Svippy. <laughs> Svippy the pinhead. And... So uh, he spots Tippi Hendren in an ad for, C- uh, in the late 1950s, in an ad for Sego, which is a kind of one of these diet shakes. Oh, I thought it was like a, a brand of lard. <laughs> you just picture the label. Beautiful women scooping <laughs> lard into a pan. That was Hitchcock's like main turn on. It was a diet shake, Sego? Yeah, like it's slim fast in yeah. our day. So we should explain to the future that uh, for the 20th century, it was considered that the best way to lose weight was to, instead of eating to just have milkshakes, the most fattening food. Right. <laughs> like, instead of eating, just have our most fattening food, a milkshake. It may seem strange to futurelings to imagine, but for most of human history, uh, you communicated wealth by corpulence. Yes. If you could afford to eat and and not a, and didn't have to work. If you could be a big round guy yeah. with a lot of shiny stuff. Yeah, you would be the, you're, you're the big man. But then in the 20th century, in our time, very recently, it flipped around, and now to communicate wealth, you would be very thin. Thin and look like you worked on the docks or in a steel mill. Your, <laughs> mus- your musculature would be that of a, of a, of a working-class person. Our, our popular brand, SlimFast, did not exist at the time. The market was dominated by Metrical and a product called Figurines, which was Pillsbury's reducing shake. 
Were they full of heroin and nicotine or were they actually, did they actually work as? I think it was just protein and sugar. I mean, it was, you know, maybe it had nutrients. Like it, it didn't actually have any kind of stimulant or, you know, it wasn't like this, these caffeine supplements that, you know, maybe our moms looked at in the checkout line in the seventies, but they came in these 10 ounce cans. And of course the pull tab hadn't been invented. So you'd have to open it with a can opener, like a thing of dog food. <laughs> and then swig the shake. So you had to have someone very sexy on your Seago commercials. I'll say. And they were 900 calories, these things, when they came out. Seago, the original can of Seago was 900 calories. How are you supposed to lose weight What with kind that? of a weight loss thing is this? Just three of these a day and soon <laughs> uh, you'll waste away to nothing. <laughs> Let me tell you about Pete, who loved hockey and always wanted to play in the NHL. Pete played since he was three and begged his mom to let him stay on the ice. Why, some nights, he even slept in his hockey skates. Pete practiced and practiced until one day. When he was 47, Pete realized he just wasn't that good, so he threw his skates in the trash. But then he heard how Geico, proud partner of the NHL, could save him money on car insurance. So he switched and saved a bunch. So it all worked out. So Alfred Hitchcock happens to see this, his physical ideal, this porcelain blonde, smacking her lips at a seagull in a commercial, and he says, uh, I must have her. Alma, you know, he talks to his kind of, his wife slash assistant, his dowdy wife slash assistant, you know, find her. Tippi Hedren had grown up in the 30s in uh, suburban Minneapolis, and uh, her fingernails actually come into her story quite early. One of her earliest memories is walking home from school at, uh, she said, around age 10, she had the bad habit of biting her nails. Right. And I have that habit. Do you bite your nails? I do. What, why do you do it? Feels uh, good. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Sexual frustration. <laughs> right. Uh, it all comes together. Nervousness. I don't, I'm not sure. No, I mean, I, it, it feels good, but also, I, why, do you, why do we bite our nails? Did you used to smoke? What else is, is, is there is to ex, bite? Do ex-smokers bite their nails? Because you gotta, you gotta do something. I smoked for a long time, but I also, um, and if any uh, insurance agents of the future are listening, <laughs> and I'm still alive, uh, it's forget that I said that they were candy John cigarettes. Never smoked. Uh, I smoked for a long time, but I bit my fingernails for my whole life, from when I was little. So if there, if it's an oral fixation, yeah, kids do it. It's, yeah. It must come from thumb sucking, not from. Nicotine. It pre-existed uh, the smoking. Anyway, she had seen somebody with just beautiful nails at school that day. I don't know if it was a, a teacher or a mom or what. And she compared it to her bitten nails. And she just thought, the only way I can have those nails is just to stop. And so she just decides, walking down this hill on this specific day in, in 1930, whatever, 1939 or 1940, she's just going to stop biting her nails. And it works. She says it's like a prophetic incantation. She says it out loud and she says she never again had the urge. And that was really formative for her, that she could just decide something. Fast forward 80 years and later, and that decision still reverberates through time. It's true. She's still alive and still has beautiful nails, as we shall see. And uh, just a few years after that, as maybe a 14-year-old teen, she was getting off a streetcar in Minneapolis, and somebody comes running up to her. Apparently, she's quite a, a beautiful little girl, and now does not have the awful fingernails right. of, her, of her youth. And this woman says, hey, have you ever modeled for a department store I'm with, uh, you know, Whippleys or right. whatever. Make up a name for a mid-century. I'm with Hoobastanks. <laughs> what if Hoobastank was named for like a Cleveland department <laughs> store of their childhood? So uh, we're doing the Hoobastanks catalog. Have you ever modeled for a department store? And so Tippy kind of enters show business this way. Nice. By Back when you could get into show business. By somebody running up to you on a streetcar. Yeah. Sitting in a, I mean, my whole youth I spent sitting at the bar in the Comet Tavern, waiting for someone to come in and discover to me. To be discovered. I imagine this method of hers still works for incredibly beautiful young women. 
we are we just not, did not have the good fortune to be incredibly beautiful young women in our twenties. They step off a streetcar, and an older woman notices their. Imagine fingernails. how she must have stepped off with, you know, with one with one uh, you know comely ankle still up on the streetcar, looking right. around for whoever's supposed to meet them with her chin up. Sure, Mary Jane's maybe a parasol, very fashionable hat, yes. and suddenly in that uh, uh, you know bewitching pose, ding ding, a woman sees her and says, "I need you for Hoobastanks." So she gets into showbiz through this back way. She's doing a lot of ads. And when Hitchcock sees her, he thinks, this woman probably can't act because all she's doing is drinking a protein shake. Sure. But Hitchcock doesn't care. I can teach her to act. She looks kind of like made-for-TV Grace Kelly. Right. And that's all he's... That's all his id is interested in, <laughs> apparently, is getting back at Grace Kelly by putting a double of her on American movie screens. So he casts her in her in his next big movie, even though she's never acted, and in fact gives her a seven-year contract after shooting a couple of screen tests. Wow. And this is 1963's The Birds, which your mom hates. Yes, doesn't like. And I, also, and I, you know, honestly... Have you seen it? I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me one sentence what you think The Birds is about. Uh, birds get in your hair. That's exactly right. And you can't get them out. And I think I saw... I think, like me personally? Like my Ken Jennings is there? Because it's no, very short your today. your hair is very short. If I were a bird, that is not the hair. When I, I go choose. into Supercuts, I always say, give me the bird proof number two. I felt like I, I there was a late night television moment where the birds was on and I watched a scene and the bird special effect was not very convincing. They seemed like they were made of paper mache, and I didn't believe that the birds were really birds. And so I didn't go all the way through to understand why they were in her hair or why that was scary or what they were about. Why Were they motivated by evil spirits? Were they animatronic? Uh, robot birds? Like robot birds of a- The of aviary a, of Dr. Moreau? Yeah, like a, like a super bad Bond villain that was making fake crows. Bird finger, <laughs> he'll put birds in your hair. You tell me why birds is good. Uh- You've kind of pinpointed the interesting thing about birds, which is that a plague of screeching, scratching birds descends on a small California town, and it's never explained why. It's kind of the horror of it. And it's never ameliorated. At the end of the movie, there's more birds than ever, and our our heroes slink away, having ceded the town to the awful birds. Can't you just go in the house? (laughs) The birds come in the house, John. The that's birds what, get in the house? That's what's so horrifying. You think this is Hitchcock at work. You think you're safe, and then boom, down oh, the chimney they come. This is scary. I don't want birds in the house. And Hitchcock, you know, famously, like one of the things he's most famous for is the idea of the MacGuffin, that you can explain away these goofy set pieces with a one-sentence sensible thing. Have you heard the word MacGuffin before? I have, yeah. I use it all the time. Really? Yeah. How, how, give, use MacGuffin in a, in a John Roderick <laughs> sentence. <laughs> what would you say to somebody? Uh, move that MacGuffin over behind the other MacGuffin. <laughs> Perfect, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you use it to mean like gizmo, or we talked about, uh, what do we talk about? The turbo encabulator? Yeah, right. Um, a but, MacGuffin in, in, a, in narrative context is just a, a, a plot element that has to be there but doesn't matter. Yeah, it's, it's arbitrary, a- but it's central. Like if in a one-line fix, Hitchco- a Hitchcock character can say, ah, we have to get that back. That's the microfilm the Russians want. And then the rest of the movie can go about its business because we all say, ah, yes, the statue has the microfilm that the it's, Russians it, Yeah, want. it's the plausible uh, origin. Yes, the plausible origin. And the thing about the birds is there is no MacGuffin. Birds are just going to come after you. They're going to slam into your phone booth. They're going to get tangled in your hair. They're going to peck out people's eyes. They're going to menace recess. 
and it will never be explained. This, Nature is cruel and vile. This makes a lot more sense why this had such a profound effect on my mom. I remember watching it and feeling, or watching this little excerpt of it and feeling like, really? This is the horror? But it's but it's the psychology. It's yes. not the actual birds. And the effects are, are you're right. In some scenes, not great. Sometimes there are modeled birds. Sometimes it's obviously uh, you know birds shot against a yellow or green process screen. Right. Um. Sometimes they're pretty good. But sometimes, as we will see, there are real trained birds acting with the actors, and that's kind of what's interesting on the Tippy Hedren side. Hitchcock Caster in this movie. It's introducing Tippy Hedren. He put Tippy in single quotes. Oh. Which is a weird what does that typograph I don't know, you would never do it. It's a typographical monstrosity, but I guess he thought it would be an attention getting star making Tippy. thing. Tippy in single quotes. Hmm. Single quote Tippy. She plays Melanie Daniels, a bored San Francisco socialite of some kind of a she's a kind of proto Kardashian who's always stumbling drunk out of fountains or wrapping her Jaguar around things. Now wait, I do know because I am uh, the one media I do consume is celebrity news. We're about to flash forward to a thing, and I think that's okay. I think you should do it here. I do know that her daughter is uh, Melanie Griffith. Yes. Uh, f- former uh, wife of Don Johnson. That's right. Mother of uh, movie star Dakota Johnson. Yeah. Academy Award nominee, I think, for Working Girl. Uh, yeah, so. But, uh, and her name in this film is Melanie? Yeah, Melanie Griffith, her daughter, who will enter the story later, is named after Melanie Daniels, her her character in her breakout. No kidding. Screen piece, yeah. Uh, and I believe, am I right about this? I think Melanie Griffith plays a child or a baby in one of Hedren's early films, maybe even one of her um, Hitchcock movies. That seems like a thing. So Melanie Daniels uh, sees an interesting man in a San Francisco pet shop and gets annoyed at him for some reason and decides, she's kind of a creepy socialite. She decides she, she's kind of a, she'll, she'll stalk him. So she actually buys a pair of lovebirds for him and decides that she will deliver it to his home in Bodega Bay. So she immediately gets in her car and then a boat just to stalk this guy she met at a pet shop. So she becomes kind of a force of chaos and maybe suspect morals in this little California town, which coincides with the bird's arrival. So there's kind of a little psychosexual Salem witch trial underpinning to the whole thing. And uh, critics have noted that early in the movie, in the San Francisco pet shop, all the way until... The birds really go at her. She just has beautiful, glossy red nails. Mm. Um, her, her fingernails are, are just the star of the show. She looks great. This is a movie that's in black and white. No, the birds is in color. Really? Why are all the promo shots of it in black and white? Um, is it possible that you have a very old computer monitor? <laughs> are they green and white? <laughs> Let's see here. Uh, if I look up Tippy Hedren Hitchcock birds. worked in Technicolor from, I think, 1948's Rope. And then he went back a few times to kind of get a, a low-budget aesthetic like in The Wrong Man or Psycho. But he worked in color pretty exclusively from the 50s. Oh, I see. You know what it is? It's that Technicolor looks like black and white to me. <laughs> to you? Yeah, just because it's so... Uh, Technicolor it's, is not a retina color, that's for sure. Yeah, it's so old-fashioned-y that I, I, I... This happens a lot. I'll watch a Technicolor movie and I'll be like, whoa, black and white. Also, the birds are black and the sky is white. That's true. There, I'm not saying there aren't. And the people are white. Right. Period. And it, the birds are black. Uh-oh. Hey, now. Problematic. Wait a minute. Uh, at the end of the movie, as Melanie and the other characters kind of slink out of Bodega Bay after they've all been assaulted and violated by these awful birds, 
Um, you see a close-up of her hand. She's sitting next to Lydia, the mom, uh, Rod Taylor's mom in the car. And there's a close-up on her hand. And now you can see her nails are chipped. All the, you know, all the polish is gone. Is this, um, is this part of the film? Yeah. Oh. It's, it's, it's a late shot it in the movie. ruined her nails. <laughs> dun, dun. That's the this worst how, thing. This is how awful this plague <laughs> is. Well, you know, you can certainly tie it into the, you know, she's the, the alpha animal that came to town. But, you know, these birds with their claws have, have re- removed her powerful right. claws. She's castrated. She's impotent now. Um, and there is a famous scene where the birds just go to town on her. Um, <sighs> late in the filming of the movie, everybody's preparing for what Hitchcock is calling the bedroom scene, which is not a sex scene. It's, it's, it's essentially the shower scene of the bird. It's the, it's the freakish assault with the quick jump cuts and the audience jumping out of their skin and your mom deciding she's never going to get a budgie. The birds are in the house. The birds get in the house and she goes into an attic and they just, I guess she goes into an upstairs bedroom if it's called the bedroom scene. And the birds just rampage. They just flood onto her. And Hedron had been told by Hitchcock and everybody else that they were going to use mechanical birds for this. And on the day of, um, she gets pulled aside by an AD or somebody who says, hey, the mechanical birds aren't working. We're doing this with trained birds. Oh, it was a fake out because they were never going to do it with the mechanical birds. We can only assume, you know, there was not a team working on hundreds of mechanical birds and they didn't work. Like, I know enough about Hollywood to know that when a, when a PA pulls you aside and says, hey, there's been a change of plan. We're going to do something really terrible instead of something that seemed fun. They were lying to you they all They were lying along. all yes. along. And so this one minute of screen time of her just getting endlessly assaulted by a, a stream of birds is shot over five days um, in which she just has to have birds thrown at her all day, every day by guys who are, you know, they're wearing long leather gloves to sure. protect them Trained from, these, bird from, throwers. These, from these birds, but she has no protection. And the whole point is for her to look like uh, ravens and pigeons and doves are just flying at her and getting caught in her hair and pecking at her and flapping their wings in her face. You ever have a bird dive bomb you or otherwise Yes, I, I have. Ha- I had a crow do it once on the UW campus. It was terrifying. It is terrifying. Yeah, I've had uh, ravens do it in Alaska, and it's awful it's, because and, and they're, this, they're big. and They're, they're, they're bigger they, than you think. They mean what they're doing. You can tell they're mean. You can tell they have a lot of power. They yeah. can fly. They're above you. You're not. Just one bird scared the heck out of me. And she was apparently, by all accounts, just traumatized. Like nobody on set can believe what Hitchcock is putting this woman through for days at a time. Uh, and so she later said that Cary Grant was on set and he came up to her and said, you're the bravest woman I've ever seen, you know, because. <laughs> what a wonderful like, Cary Grant that, impression. Maybe I, can I get another, can I get another take at that? Do, do that. Do it again. <laughs> you're the bravest woman I've ever seen. That's even worse. It falls apart at the end. I liked it. You're the bravest woman. You're the bravest woman I've ever it's not happening. I, I'm, I'm, I'm completely sold. <laughs> Carrie, are you in, are you I, on the podcast? I'm going to buy you one of those suits. <laughs> Let's make this one of those improv <laughs> podcasts where it's like, oh, look, it's director <laughs> Werner Herzog. <laughs> Carrie Grant, why are you on the omnibus? So it wasn't just one kind of bird. You're saying that birds, uh, they were all kinds of birds, in pigeons the, in the stuff? movie. Yeah. In the, 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 the conceit of the movie is that all the kinds of birds have turned on man. Uh, so it's gulls from the sea and crows and ravens from the land. And even somebody's little pet canary turns bad. Flies the, the up little your girls. urethra and yeah. <laughs> builds a nest. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's a terrifying scene that <laughs> is not in the American prints. And the reason apparently for Hitchcock putting this woman through this, it did not come out until Donald Spoto, the critic, started interviewing people about Hitchcock's dark side in the 80s. But Hedren told him that Hitchcock had made overt sexual advances to her. Oh. And in fact, told her that she, in so many words that she had to be sexually available to him at all times. Oh, no. Or for, and this is how their relationship was going to work from now on. 
And or else he'll like throw, shoot throw, birds at him? Throw birds at her. Oh, no. And she said, uh, no, I can't do it. And that was when he decided he was going to ruin her life and career, apparently. What? And this is a darker turn uh, than, than you were expecting? I was expecting from the master of horror. The master of horror, apparently, in Tippi Hedren's memory, you know, perpetrated many real life horrors. And, you know, later in her career, she only made this movie and Marnie one more for him. And as she tells it, he would not let her out of her contract. She had a seven year contract with him. And once he had decided not to use her for not being his, uh, you know, concubine side piece, uh-huh. he decided just she would not work again. And she went from being Hollywood's newest it girl to whatever happened to in less than five years. Now, in the 70s, she would still show up at when he would get Lifetime Achievement Awards. Uh, she was even at his funeral. And other Hitchcock leading women, including Eva Marie Sand and Kim Novak, have both said, I never saw that side of Hitchcock. But many right. people on the set of The Birds did say it was incredibly creepy how he was fawning all over her. And, you know, as we know in our day, there's never any shortage of people to show up and say, well, he was a good boyfriend to me or... Right, right. And, right. and you know, and all these women who now are telling the truth about Harvey Weinstein, they still had to do press conferences and smile for the cameras and and hug him at Cannes and Park City. And uh, so, you know, and, and it, it, it does seem very plausible given how people describe their onset relationship that he was just ruining her life. Well, and at this time, it would seem like it, he would be able to isolate her a lot more even than you could do now, just in, sure. in the sense that he would be controlling every aspect of a film set. Famously, and, uh, you know, adjusting her makeup and every, a strand of everybody's hair and don't put her in that dress, put her in this dress. And he's got a lot of power. Wow. Bummer. So uh, she only- Because makes, she seems like a very strong and uh, like capable and also like no BS type of person. Yeah, well, imagine strong Scandinavian Minneapolis stock. You know, she's not some. I mean, she she did her time in the in the uh, Hubastank like print ad wars of the 1930s, and she survived. Uh, she decided not to bite her nails. She decided that she was not like what she says. She kept telling herself during those five awful days was, "I am not going to let this man break me." Wow, like, I'm going to get the scene. War of the um, wills against Hitchcock. And the last day, I guess, is her just lying on the, this is the end of the scene when the birds are just pecking at her and then Rod Taylor pulls her out. And they shot that basically by putting her on the floor and putting birds on her and making birds peck her. <laughs> and that was the last day. It was just that. And I guess at the end of the day, she's just broken. She's sobbing. She looks around and everybody's kind of gone. You know, she remembers that as that's the, that was the end of the day. And this was Hitchcock. This was retribution. For her not succumbing to his advances. Yes. In, in, this wasn't just him him trying to get the, the best shot. I mean, I'm sure there's a little from column A and a little from column B. But yes, in every retelling of this since she first opened up to Donald Spoto about their relationship, this is how she sees it. He was, wow. he was angry because she would not put out. And so he shot birds at her for five days. Wow. You can't really watch this movie the same way. It will kind of ruin the movie. Maybe, you know, it's already ruined for your mom. So you, right. you can tell her. And I'm unlikely to go see it. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let alone now. It's hard to watch that scene now. So she kind of descends into, you know, low budget movies after this. It, it, it does effectively end her career. The next set of nails in Tippy's story are not her nicely manicured nails or a set of bird talons. They are lion and tiger claws. In the 1970s, she uh, marries her agent, producer Noel Marshall, as, uh-huh. as actresses, as was the style at the time. Yes. 
Um, he's a executive producer on The Exorcist, so he's a Hollywood guy. If I could marry my agent now, I would. Uh, I I think it's not too late. It's probably legal in all fifty states now. Yeah, for you to marry your agent, it would require that I really have an agent. <laughs> that would be the start. So she and her agent husband Noah Marshall are in Africa making some kind of low budget movie, and they, they see a uh, plantation house that's been abandoned and left to the the wildcats, like lions now. Live, uh-huh. live and hunt there. Uh-huh. And they think, what a great idea for a movie. You know, we should make a movie. And they kind of concoct this idea just on their own. We could make this. You know, it's about an animal keeper in Africa. He's got to fight off this pride of lions, but also these poachers. You know, he's an animal trainer who keeps a bunch of lions on hand. They think this is a great idea. Is this one of these, like, the script will write itself uh, <laughs> problems? Just put me in a room with a bunch of lions. As long as you got a bunch of lions. America loves lions. I think they kind of thought that, and they hadn't thought through a lot of the consequences of, yeah, we'll just have a bunch of lions. They get back to Hollywood, and they find out nobody will finance this. They're going to have to pay for it themselves. Nobody will um, do the animal training for it because you just cannot control dozens of big cats in a movie like this. All right. the animal people they talk to say, no, this is not possible. Right. We will, you cannot use our lions and tigers. One cat at a time, they say. That's the Hollywood way. <laughs> And they can't find an actor to do it because, again... Nobody's controlling the lions. Giant, big lions. Listen. So you can't get Paul Newman. I'll be in the movie. You got to control the lions. You have to promise me. And it's not irrational. I mean, you got the Siegfried and Roy problem that these are wild cats. No matter how well they've trained, at some point, instinct might take over and they might just swipe a paw and take off a face. Imagine being in a Hitchcock movie where he's mad that you won't sleep with him and he's throwing lions at you. He just shoots lions and tigers at you for, for five days. Um, so they don't have a trainer, they don't have a leading man, they don't have money, so they decide, no problem, we'll pay for it ourselves, we'll get our own lions and put them out on this ranch in Acton, California we've bought, and we, it's in LA County, but it's out past Santa Clarita, it's in the middle of nowhere, and we will have Noel, my husband, play the, the animal keeper, he's the lead, he's our new leading man, because nobody else will do it. And, do, and he's the agent. He's the agent. And do we have any lion teachers? Maybe not even trainers, lion whisperers. They have acquired their own lions and tigers. Because in Hollywood, there's all these retired sure. lions and tigers. So they, they buy their own big cats. And I guess they get their own training program going. Uh-huh. And they make a movie. And they spend 11 years making Roar. Uh, with Tippi Hedren and her husband playing the couple. And their kids, Melanie, the future Melanie Griffith. And her stepbrothers, uh Marshall's kids from a past marriage playing the son. So it's a family affair. And then just hundreds of lions and tigers and cheetahs and jaguars. And it's a debacle. Like, Do the, uh, do the cats fight each other? The cats fight each other and the cats uh, attack the humans. There are, right. uh, by most accounts, between 70 and 100 injuries during the decade of making this movie. Many serious. When it was re-released recently, the poster actually says, no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. They just harmed all the actors. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me, and I've I've been trying to coin this adage for a long time, but as this, if you take longer and longer to make a creative project and the scope of the project actually gets smaller as time progresses, it may be that you're making a work of true genius. Mm. As if you take longer and longer working on a creative project and the scope continues to expand. We need more Jaguars. <laughs> you're pretty... Pretty definitely not like making a masterwork. And it, which is the case of, let's say, let's say a new Long Winter's record were to come out after love these many years. Right. Is I, the scope narrowing or I, is it widening? I think the scope is narrowing. As awesome. I work on new music, I'm taking more away than I'm adding. And, I, and that feels like I'm making progress. Have if, you thought about putting lions in it? 
There are already lions in it. Is it Pedro the Lion? <laughs> so, and Pedro the Lion is also in it, but I have to, you know, I think some of those lions are going to end up on the cutting room floor. They don't like that. Well, no. They've got agents. They'll make any floor a cutting room floor. Oh. So there's a series of injuries. The cinematographer is Jan de Bont, who later went on to shoot, a Dutch guy who later went on to shoot Die Hard and became a director. He made Speed and uh, Twister. Oh. Your favorite movies. But he was, this was an early job for him. And he was scalped by a wildcat, and he needed 220 stitches to put his scalp back on. Ouch! Are those scars visible in his like later? I was looking at a movie. Promo photos? I was looking at a photo of him, and his hair. Now that his hair is kind of thin, it seems a little more possible than it would have been before. No, he's still got he's still got a nice head of hair. Oh, okay. We may never know. Melanie Griffith, then a young, you know, barely a teen, was mauled by a lion and had to have her face reconstructed. No. Yeah. So she's making a movie where her own kids are just getting eaten by. By lions. And also they're aging on screen. They're <laughs> making this 11 movie years. over 11 years. <laughs> so the eight-year-old is now, you know, 20. Boy, it just seems like these, yeah, I guess when a poacher attacks your plantation, you just age a lot overnight. Um, an AD narrowly escaped death when a lion bit him on the neck and missed his jugular by only an inch. Tippy Hendon herself was in, injured many times, including a broken leg, multiple scalp wounds. And at each turn, they just doubled down on the plan. They did. Like, we got to finish this. They threw more and more money at it. It ended up costing $17 million. When it was finally released, it made a whopping $2 million Wow. And was once described as the most expensive home movie ever made. <laughs> uh, but it changed the course of their lives, you know. Um, even though they were probably not doing great animal rights-y stuff, they kind of realized as they were doing this, oh, you know what? Lions and tigers should not be pets. So they turned this ranch in Acton into Shambhala, which kind of becomes a retirement home for aging Hollywood jungle animals. Oh, they, turned, they became animal uh, rescuers? Yeah. And to this day, that's their animal rescue operation. Tippi Hedren still lives in this ranch in Acton where she uh, tends and uh, you know, has a staff to take care of rescue lions and tigers and leopards and whatnot. Hmm. And she worked to pass legislation to make it illegal to keep these big animals as pets, because I guess it was still not against federal law to keep giant cats as pets in the U.S. as recently as, you know, the 70s, early Reagan era. Right, right. So she's successful in lobbying for, for new laws there. So something good does come out of Roar, in addition to thousands of, of stitches and, and gangrene and whatnot. Um, have you, by the way, this is a parenthetical, but have you, have you ever been to that retirement place for old movie animals they have out on the Olympic Peninsula? It's outside of Squim? No. So I there, guess I guess all of Disney's old bears and really? bobcats and mountain lions and whatnot got sent out to, to Squim, Washington. And like, are they wearing kind of like tattered straw hats and stuff? And like, like <laughs> yeah, it's the country bears. <laughs> they're, all, they're all robots. Did I not mention that? <laughs> You drive around this place and, uh, you know, there's herds of zebras and llamas that'll like look into your car and spit on you and, mm -hmm, and bison mm -hmm. that will ram your car if you were smart and if, if you were dumb and did not rent a car for this. I love it. I'll pay any amount of money. It's kind of funny. They got shut down for a while because people were, um, you would just bring in loaves of Wonder Bread and you would use this, like ducks, you would use these pieces of bread to attract <laughs> llamas and bison and stuff to your uh -huh. car so you could get up close and personal with the animals. How could that be a problem? <laughs> I, don't see how, I don't see how that could ever get out of control. Here's my favorite thing. They agreed to reopen, but with a new animal-friendly policy that from now on it would be whole wheat bread. <laughs> so you pull up to this place and now they have to sell you their loaves of whole wheat bread, which you can then feed to the... We absolutely need to take a field trip out there 
to the Olympic Peninsula retired home for movie bears. I have been there once and, uh, and you'll never go back. My father-in-law, it's, it's pretty great. Like my father-in-law got llama saliva all over him from the crown of his head down to his shirt mm, collar. That's worth the trip, right? Um, but yeah, I don't know how I feel about it from a actual animal rights point of view. So can you go to Tippy Hedren's uh, lion retirement community? Oh, I don't know. Shambhala, you want to go see, Maybe you want to go should. see Tippy's lions? Maybe we should go down. There's a field trip. Uh, you know, at this point, her after Roar, her movie career is pretty much past. But she's, she, you know, she has strong moral fiber, moral compass of the, the upper Midwest. Can you rent Roar? Uh, I believe so. Are there any shots in the movie Roar where people are getting visibly mauled? Yes. Apparently, many of the most gripping, stun, you know, most successful and uh, and convincing stunt shots are the ones where people are actually <laughs> bleeding. And so those got used in the movie. <laughs> I don't know if you can stream it. It's out on Blu-ray and DVD, I think. Huh. But, you know, so at this point, post-Roar, She's mostly an activist. She's into animal rights causes. And she gets very involved in an organization that's doing rescue at sea operations for Vietnamese boat people. After the fall of Saigon, there was a flood of refugees out of Vietnam. And many of them just kind of headed out into the Pacific Ocean on these crammed little boats. Right. You know, not, not unlike what you see in the Mediterranean today. And it was a, just a, a... It was a bad scene. Yes. What's the what's the better way to say that? It was a human, not human rights. It was a, it was a humanitarian hum- oh, uh, crisis. It was a humanitarian crisis. That's right. what I want to say. Like or, the- or as we say in rock, a bad scene. Right. And so she actually works on one of these boats in the South China Sea. You know, they're not allowed to, to take people on board permanently, but they're allowed to give them provisions, give them directions. Why are they? Why uh, is she? Why is Tippi Hedren involved in this? She has a strong social conscience uh from her Midwestern Lutheran childhood and then sharpened by the social justice environment of Los Angeles County and show business. Right on. And she feels for the plight of these Vietnamese refugees who just want a new life and freedom, blah, blah, blah. So there's no, she has no direct connection. It's just that she was taken by the by the plight. I believe so, yes. I, I don't know the origin story here, but she winds up on a boat in the South China Sea working with refugees. And um, in 1975, her even though her movie career is essentially over, her fingernails are ready for their close-up. Um, her fingernails come back into this story? Her fingernails ba- are back in a I big guess, way. I guess it is the title of the show. In 1970, you know, after being menaced by bird claws and tiger claws, she stands bloody but unbowed. Her fingernails are still beautiful, apparently. In, yes. 19, in 1975, she's at Hope Village, uh, a little refugee camp near Sacramento, where she's visiting the these you know fresh off the boat Vietnamese Americans, and she's trying to figure out vocational training. You know, what do you do for this burgeoning population of untrained developing world immigrants? A lot of them are working as typists or seamstresses. What skill can you teach these people that will let them participate in the California economy? And by a coincidence. She's got amazing nails, and these women immediately notice that she's got these movie star nails. Because, you know, imagine if you've been on a boat crossing the Pacific. This has got to look pretty glamorous. This sure. woman showing up with her pearls and her amazing manicure. She's a movie star. She's literally, yeah. she was, you know, one of the biggest movie stars of the early 60s before Hitchcock started pawing at her. So uh, these women are fascinated and cannot stop talking about her manicure. And she starts to think, well, you know, that's a job. Yes, it is. 
manicurist is a job, and there's a, there's no language barrier, really. Sure. You know, like uh, if you can, there's maybe 12 English phrases you would have to know to do somebody's nails, I guess. <laughs> and so this is a real low barrier to entry. This is a, seems like a real good opportunity. Do you, do you ever get your nails done? Are you a manicure guy? So when my daughter was young, I think very young, her mother who, you know, I, uh, the nail and salon culture, even in my own family was largely hidden from me. I was not, you know, my sister and mother and, uh, and the women in my life, I wasn't involved in them going to the salon. Except right? for the Patrick Nagel prints. Well, no, I had my, my Nagel print was a side, uh, my Nagel print thing was a side thing. <laughs> I had, didn't even know it was related to the salons. It, and, and so it came as a huge surprise to me to learn that they all had regular salon They'd experiences. Been secretly, shamefully going to. Well, I, I think it was just, it was a cultural divide where it was never brought up to me. Maybe if I said, where are you going? And someone said, I'm going to the salon. Maybe it went in one ear and out the other, but I wasn't aware of what was happening. Uh, and then when my daughter was born, her mother pretty early on took her to the nail salon to have her toenails painted. And I felt a little bit like, you know, there are plenty of cultures where they pierce baby's sure. ears. I am not a pierce your baby's ears person. And so I think what the first time my daughter appeared with painted toenails, Maybe the first thing I said was, do not pierce her ears at one of these things <laughs> without us agreeing on it. Not before her quinceanera. And, and, uh, and her mother was like, oh, no, 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 no. I would never pierce a baby's ears. And I, and I said, yeah, but you're painting a baby's toenails. Well, that's different. Not, not a seductive red, I assume. You know, a cute, a cute pastel. Uh, who knows what it was? I mean, but it, it entered into my daughter's life such that now she loves going to the salon. She gets her fingernails and toenails painted. She's always very excited by it. It's a mother-daughter activity. Well, this is a difference between your mom and your sister's generation and what salon culture is today. Yeah. Because in the early 70s, when Tippy meets these boat people, a manicure in America cost 50 bucks in 1970. It was not a middle-class thing. I mean... Yeah, you'd go sit in the salon all day and get a permanent wave and... Yeah, and this was not, you know, today, obviously, this is a fun middle-class treat for girlfriends to go do on a Saturday morning or, or you know, to take to take your daughter to. Right. And this did not exist at the time. It was for movie stars and, and, and millionaires' wives, you know? Like, people did not go in and have their nails done. It was too expensive. But as a result of this conversation, Tippi Hedren thinks, well, maybe these women could learn to do nails. Like, it's like Air Bud. There's, uh -huh. there's, there's nothing in the rule book against Vietnamese Americans doing nails, uh -huh. which at the time you have to understand was a novelty. Right. So she gets her own personal beautician in there, flies him up and has him teach these original 20 women to do nails. And of course, you know, he's the best of the best. He's some Hollywood nail guy. Really? And so these 20 women become manicure experts and they start to teach other women. And then Tippy finds a local beauty school near Sacramento and says, why don't we just enroll all these women in beauty school? As soon as they get here, and within a month or two, they will be licensed manicurists, and they'll have a job. She starts finding these women jobs all over California by just cold-calling salons. Beauty school dropout. <laughs> but they don't drop out. They're hardworking Asian-American immigrants. Go back to high school. So they do not drop out. In fact, they form a whole community and start to create family businesses built around nail salons. And as you know, if you've been to a nail salon lately, particularly in California, it is now a very much a Vietnamese American 
industry. 51% of all American manicurists are of Vietnamese origin. That's true in Seattle, I think. In California, it's 80%. There's a four out of five chance that your manicurist is Vietnamese. And this was a cultural thing that did not exist until 1975 when these women admired the movie star nails of Tippi Hedren. So cosmetology is a career that requires a state license. And that often comes up in political conversations because it's a, on the one hand, it would be a job that would be available to a, a woman or anyone who didn't have an education and you know, it's a, a kind of job you could have as an, an immigrant. A, yes. But, but if, if you're you, undocumented. It became a, a pretty regulated job and there are, you know, limitations put on who can get this license and, and going through the process of getting a cosmetology license is an expensive process now. That does seem a little silly. I mean, I'm new to this debate, but you know, I, I want my pilots to be licensed right. and I want my heart surgeon to be licensed. It's often one of the things used as an example of you know, the um, gun ownership is completely unregulated, but in order to... to uh, <laughs> Right, to, to hold an emery board. Yeah, to paint uh, someone's fingernails, you need like like pretty extensive training. I mean, there is, I guess there is a lot of downside. You know, I once, uh, I once rear-ended a, another car because I, um, my wife had just gotten a haircut. Have I ever told you this? No. She hops, we're in downtown Seattle. She hops back in the car straight from the salon and was like, how does it look? And it's not a great look. And I'm looking at her trying to figure out what to say. Oh, she got a bad haircut. It's not a, yeah. I don't want to say a bad haircut. Right, right, That's right. not nice. No, it was a- it I'm not a, Alfred Hitchcock grooming my my women to have a certain creepy look to it fulfill was a challenging my childhood haircut. sex fantasies. Yes. yes. It was uh, maybe not what she had pictured, mm-hmm. but she wanted to hear something nice. So I'm trying to figure out what to say. And as I look at her and as I'm pulling out, the woman in front of me stops short because of a pedestrian and I bump into the car in front of me <laughs> and dent her bumper. Wow. And it turns out to be a crazy lady who- um, who actually does not like the insurance offer and says she has neck injuries and is going to wear one of these big fortune cookie neck braces. Oh, it turned into a whole thing. And it turned into a whole thing where I had to go give a deposition. And in the, she took me to court and in the deposition. Did you say your wife's haircut was bad? They asked me, so, and and was your attention distracted at the time of the collision? Yes, it was. Why was it distracted? My wife had just gotten in the car and asked me about her new haircut. And I, and they're like, and how was her haircut? And there's a log pause and they're like, Mr. Jennings, I must remind you, you are under oath. <laughs> I'm sure the guy had been waiting so long to get to do something like that. <laughs> I had to testify under That's oath. Pretty that great. It was not a great haircut. How so, are your, so, the, so there are downsides to unlicensed. How are your cuticles? I would say I never get a manicure. I don't take a little orange stick and push down my cuticles as much as I would like. Are your cuticles a hobby for you? No, I my cuticles are trashed. My fingernails look like I work in an acid factory. <laughs> uh, they're just, you know... I, you look like you've been attacked by birds for five I days. I do, I do. But uh, have you ever had a manicure? I have not. I and haven't I, either. And I think genetically, I'm, my fingernails look okay, so I must just have nail good, privilege, good hand, I guess. Good hand yes. genes. Like, I don't, I don't have to do... Much. I mean, if I wanted a, a nice Vietnamese American lady to paint a daisy on each of my pinkies, I would have to go in someplace. I don't know why I keep uh, seeing this episode in terms of field trips, but maybe we should go get manicures. This is going to be our our TV pitch for Omnibus. You know, we do it, we do this, and then we have to go to a wild animal farm, and then we have to go watch a Hitchcock movie, and then we have to go uh, get our nails done. It's like a dare show. <laughs> Tiffy Hedren uh, is now still alive with us. I think she's maybe turns ninety this year. Um, she hasn't uh, doesn't do movies much anymore, but of course she's the 
founder of a Hollywood dynasty family, Melanie Griffith and Dakota Johnson. And she's the godmother of a billion dollar industry stretching from coast to coast. She's single-handedly, in in this case, handed literally, created the Vietnamese American nail salon. And she says, I sure wish I had a percentage of it. I wouldn't be working so hard to keep these lions and tigers fed. (laughs) (laughs) And that concludes Tippy Hedron's Fingernails. Entry 1311.DE0212, certificate number 28046, in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. I am certain that there are more Instagram accounts dedicated to fingernails than there probably are Instagram accounts dedicated to craft cocktails. I am not hooked up on fingernail Instagram. I've, I've, I hadn't, it, it hadn't occurred to me until just this moment, but I bet there are so many fingernails, like beautiful fingernail designs. Although I say that with a, a little bit of hesitation because I've never fully understood painted fingernails as a beauty item. Are you attracted to painted fingernails? Not really. I don't think even just ones that are normally red, they just seem like, why would you make your fingers look like you had just stabbed